new series this morning called Methodism for Smarties, because we're all about being positive and affirming and encouraging, not pointing out anything that we don't know, but saying, hey, here are our roots, here's our foundation, we're smart. That's where we're starting from. Not Methodism for dummies, but for Smarties. Exploring our core United Methodist thought and belief, maybe at any certain point in time you've asked, what do we really believe? What makes us Methodist as a church, what's going on in the UMC right now? Some of you have even asked that of me recently. We've had some visitors. They've asked that. What does it mean to be United Methodist? And so this is sort of a fun way for us to explore that together with Scripture as our foundation. And what I hope is that it's kind of just a fun change of pace, a little more conversational uh, for the few weeks before we start Advent. That's right. 49 days till Christmas. (laughs) Okay, I won't do that every week, but it is really fun. (laughs) I did that a few weeks ago. We talked about St. Nicholas, but here we are. Three more weeks till Advent begins. We need some preparation. So there will still be small group curriculum provided for each of our house groups to go along with this series. If you're in a house group and you want to dig deeper there. Um, But also, uh, if you want to learn more, um, we also have a book study, a book club that's going to be starting tomorrow night for the four weeks in November. Going to be looking through this book together. It's called Being United Methodist in the Bible Belt. Um, it's, It's a really quick read. It's a really good conversation starter. Even if you haven't ordered the book yet or read it, if you'd like to join us tomorrow night at 630 All are welcome to be a part of that. Again, there still will be some different stuff for the house group curriculums um, for for you to kind of, you know, engage there. But this is open church-wide for everyone. And just as an opportunity for a plug, if you aren't in a house group and would like to be, it is never too late to sign up for one. You can sign up online with the form that we have. You can come talk to me. We can talk about the options, the groups that we have going on right now that meet all over the city. We say that this is sort of the lifeblood of our church. This is where, like, the core discipleship making happens is in these small groups because we eat together, we study together, we serve together, we pray together. And if you didn't know, this is actually a really Methodist thing that we do. Like, yes, everybody has small groups, lots of, but kind of our foundations of it was what John Wesley called class meetings. When it was just simply a reform movement of the Anglican church, He saw folks that had been sort of lifelong Anglicans. He thought they needed sort of a revival of heart and and spirit. Uh, And so he had uh, these class meetings that met weekly. And you would ask, like, questions of accountability. How is it with your soul? And you would share with one another. You'd confess your struggles and sins with one another. They would study scripture together, and they would grow in holiness and in faith, and in love, together as a smaller group. And I've shared this with you before, because y'all and I get really nerdy today, and I do apologize ahead of time, but John Wesley himself was pretty, he went to Oxford, like he's pretty nerdy. Uh, he called his class meeting, when he was at, the Ox, at Oxford, he called it the Holy Club. So, that's like nerd alert, right? That's like, he called it, he called it the group that he was a part of, the Holy Club. (laughs) So class meetings, house groups, it's a very Methodist thing that we do. If you'd like to be a part of one, uh, let me know. I'd love to get you connected. 
All right, so Methodism for Smarties. I want to start by first saying kind of the foundation that we find ourselves, the starting point, is being part of the universal church, the universal Catholic church, and sort of this like firm foundation of our faith that we believe we share with Christians all over the world, regardless of faith, tradition, or denomination. Uh, We read the Apostles' Creed last week. We talked about the communion of saints last week, which definitely goes beyond denomination. Uh, And this week, uh, we read the Nicene Creed. These are things that we affirm together, that that we recognize as a part of these core truths, right, with all of the other believers and our brother, sister, brothers and sisters in Christ, our belief about God as creator, the divinity of Christ, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the work of the communion of saints, the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and our future hope for coming glory. These are sort of those core truths that are universally held that we too, as United Methodists, believe. So we, we therefore, we participate in a lot of ecumenical dialogue, that is, with other faith traditions, with other denominations. We recognize ourselves as part of the World Methodist Council that makes up lots of other denominations that would claim John Wesley and Charles Wesley as some of their early founders, like the African Methodist Episcopal Church, African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, Wesleyan Methodist, there's Free Methodist, there's Evangelical Methodists, and there's probably more. Probably more. And, of course, there is United Methodist. Thank you, David. Did you see the next slide coming? That in 1968, it was the Methodist Episcopal Church that merged with the Evangelical United Brethren Church to form the United Methodist Church today. So when you saw all those MEC, other churches, those, those had already sort of branched off from the Methodist Episcopal Church, um, which really formed, okay, around the revolution, we had lots of Anglican churches here because we were English colonies, Church of England, Anglican. We became Episcopal after the revolution. Lots of Anglican priests were kind of run out of town. <laughs> because they were English, (laughs) they represented England, Uh, but anyways, that's a whole other history, but that's, we are just a couple steps away related uh, from the Church of England, um, from Anglicans and even Episcopalians still today. Um, We're we're cousins, maybe closer cousins than we even, even realize. So, that was in 1968, the beginning of the United Methodist Church, but what, what I want you to hear, if you only remember one thing today, have this be one, one of the many things. But here's the, one of the main things is you've heard me say from here many times, the firm foundation of our faith, the most important thing above all else is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is our core firm foundation. Ephesians, we say it was faith expressing itself through love, that faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and how we live our lives in response to that and love, that's what it's about. And that's what we hold firm and share with Christians all over the world, regardless of denomination. That's a really important piece and kind of that whole uh, heritage that we share. But this series, we're answering the question of what makes United Methodists unique any other church that you might pass. And and I want to also say a word of beginning this like with great humility. 
are our understandings, the, the convictions that we've come to. But I think on this side of heaven, it's important to always remember that none of us, regardless of denomination, have it all right. So this is what makes us United Methodists today, but also there's always a chance that we could be wrong, and in fact, you know, none of us have it all right, right? And so especially in the book study, this comes up because we point out a lot of differences um, between some other, you know, especially in our, the culture where we live. We, we might encounter a lot of differently held beliefs and views. Uh, and we never, ever want to sort of make fun of or demonize or put down as if we are better because we have this deeper understanding of Wesleyan grace. Good understanding of Wesleyan grace, but it's just the convictions that we've come to. And so I want us all to enter this with kind of that spirit of humility. So what is it that makes us uniquely united Methodists today? I think it's two things our understanding of grace, which is really held by real, you know, all Wesleyans, okay? That whole World Methodist Council, they would all affirm this teaching today. But the two things that sort of make us uniquely United Methodists are our Wesleyan understanding of grace, and then second, our connectionalism. And that's not a word, but we say it. Word does not accept it as a word. <laughs> Microsoft Word underlines it every time. But we say it all the time as United Methodists, our connectionalism in our system of churches that we are a part of. And that's going to be next week. That's going to be next week. Kind of our structure and why we are the way that we are and how we work. And that's where, honestly, we get the most questions, right? And that's okay. There's going to be something to, to make that fun next week either a bingo card or for every time I say connectionalism or popcorn, maybe. Would you all like that? Smarties. We could have Smarties. That's why, yeah, that's good. That's really good. Um, or maybe a question and answer session because next week, you know, when we get into the polity and structure of what makes us uniquely United Methodists, that's where it gets fun and really interesting. Yeah, yeah, nerd alert right here. That's fine. But today we're going to focus on grace, our Wesleyan understanding of grace. That is the undeserved, unmerited, and loving action of God in the world through the ever-present Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. The ways that we experience God's presence and love, it is all a gift of grace that neither of us, none of us deserve. John Wesley called it the bounty or favor. <laughs> His free, undeserved favor, man having no claim to the least of his mercies, it was free grace that formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him a living soul and stamped on that soul the image of God and put all things under his feet. For there is nothing we are or have or do which can deserve the least thing at God's hand. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's God's grace to be present, to create, to heal, to forgive, to reconcile, to transform us. All gifts of grace within a community of faith. So we understand there are three types. You might have heard these phrases before. There are three types. Lots of other words that we've made up. Are you ready? <laughs> Provenient grace. That is the grace that goes before us. Preventing grace or the grace before we are even aware of God's love 
before we are even aware of our deep need for grace and forgiveness and pardon from our sins, we understand provenient grace. It's that, it's that grace that God sort of seeks us out, seeks us out, the goodness of creation, the goodness of God to be at work in the world, the first mover of love and grace. For God so loved the world. That's our understanding sort of of provenient grace. And also why we would baptize infants. In a lot of other traditions, that doesn't make sense. Because baptism is your initiation into the church. You're sort of, um, you're beginning uh, of a, it should begin with a confession of faith. But because we, we believe so strongly in provenient grace, we recognize and understand that no matter your age, and even for our children, that were created in the image of God, all, all of creation is, is sort of good in that sense, that God's grace is at work in our children's lives even before they understand or recognize it. That covenant that we make as a church to stand up and say, and we are going to cultivate the faith of this young person together. And that leads to the second type, which is justifying grace. It's the grace that makes us right makes us right before God, that pardons our sins, that forgives us. You've heard me say maybe uh, to be as, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justification. Clean slate. Made righteous before God. It's that moment of accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who forgives us and pardons us. It's that aha moment where you suddenly realize, I sort of need a lot of grace. (laughs) I'm in deep need of a divine savior. And we can look back and we can see all of the people and all of the episodes and all of the ways that God had been in our, at work in our life up until that point when we say for ourselves and confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the provenient grace that draws us into the moment of justification. I should have done a bingo card today, right? There's lots of good words here. Justification. John Wesley described this moment in his own life, this justification, after years of being a believer, and even an Anglican priest. He described this moment in his journal. About a quarter before nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It's that moment of of that altar moment, right, of being bowed down before Christ, of realizing your, your deep need for God and for grace and feeling that sense of assurance and pardon and freedom. First time it happens, you know, other, you know, so our Baptist brothers and sisters might call that sort of the altar call, the moment of salvation. Moment of salvation. But for us, and what we'll get to in just a minute, is that we understand salvation as a whole lifelong process of growth into grace and holiness. It's not just one moment we can point to, but it's the whole journey all along. The one moment that we can point to that our Baptist brothers and sisters might call the moment of salvation, we call the moment of justification. where We experience God's justifying grace to make us holy, to make us right. Which then leads to the third type, the last type, 
sanctifying grace. That is all of the ways in which God's grace makes us holy. That sanctifies us. Wesley referred to this process as holiness of heart and life. This is the grace that perfects us in love, that allows us to to grow in love of God and love of neighbor. It's that growth in grace over time with our goal being glorification with Christ. Our goal being Christian perfection, Wesley calls it. And what that means is being perfected in love. To be perfected in love hope you're hearing it now that this is sort of that lifelong process and we do we have moments where we still experience God's justifying grace even after that first moment of justification because all throughout our faith journey we are confessing our sins we are receiving God's forgiveness and pardon we are growing we are being fueled by the Holy Spirit to continue to grow and learn and to deepen our love of God and of neighbor I was going to attempt to draw this for you live, but then I got really nervous, so I did it beforehand. And yes, Logan helped me with this. That's why it looks the way that it does. Don't blame that boy. Yeah, they all know. Okay. So how I used to teach this in confirmation, y'all got really excited because when I was at Florence and would teach confirmation to the youth every year, I would stand up on one of those large, like, chart paper pad things and draw this check mark for these sweet little youth and say this mark right here this is your this is your faith journey this is your faith journey of everything kind of before that moment of justification whether that's accepting Jesus Christ as your lord and savior whether that's confirmation where for young people you stand before the whole church and accept Jesus on your own right everything that comes after that everything that comes after that is our growing in a holy life, in sanctification. And that arrow kind of pointing up toward our goal of glorification with Christ, of being resurrected with Christ when he returns. So kind of everything before the blue is our experience of provenient grace. That moment of justification is is the beginning, really, of our life committed to following Jesus Christ. And so there's a change in direction, a repentance from that point Kendall's laughing because I'm getting nerdy. You are. And then everything after that in green, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing is salvation, the whole process together. I know you all have heard this before. Have you heard it compared to a house? Salvation as a house. Provenient grace is the front porch. It's everything that's drawn you to that moment of being close to the house, that you're on the front porch. Some people call that the the place of repentance, of being on the porch, but then it's the door is justification, the door is faith, that sort of belief in God, that confession on your own of Jesus Christ as Lord, that's the entryway, the doorway into the house. That's holy living. A lot of traditions will point to the, the porch or the door and say that's the goal. You're saved, you're done, you're good to go. But for us, the the altar, the door, is, is not the goal, it's the house. It's life with God, of growing in grace and holiness. That's our goal. Our goal is to be in the house of the Lord. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering, as you think about this, Brenda, can you just go back one? I'm scared to touch it. 
As you think about prevenient, it's working, so I'm afraid to touch it. If you, as you think about prevenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace, I want you to pause for like 30 seconds, and I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to give an example of how you've experienced prevenient grace and justifying grace. Let's just start with those two in your own life. Who have been agents of prevenient grace for you that have shown you the love of God, and do you remember the first moment of justification for you, of that first acceptance and confession ready go you have 30 seconds well I would love to hear each and every one of you especially share who have been agents of prevenient grace in your life I've asked Kendall to share a little testimony moment with us this morning which is usually scary in its own mind but just, just to allow me to even talk um, three types of grace um, Rachel and I were talking about this. Our stories are very similar, only mine's a whole lot older. Um, the prevenient grace, I grew up in the church. Obviously, my dad was a Methodist minister. Um, so it was in front of me all the time that God loved me, why he loved me, singing all the church songs, and that is the, the initial start of, of my journey. When I got to Justifying Grace, it was at uh, Lucon, which another thing that Rachel and I share, but the thing that she doesn't share is the fact that, number one, I remember when the United Methodist Church started, and you probably don't. That's great. I was there. There when they crucified our Lord, too? Close. Oh, okay. Close. I, I did drive one of the nails. Vance was actually the one that was there. But uh, the, the justification came at Lucon when I realized that that... Christ was a part of my life uh, when he came into my heart and said, um, you're one of mine. So that is what I remember at Lucon at a young age. Uh, and then the sanctifying grace part is one that continues to grow. And it is one that I have to constantly work on, as Micah will uh, attest to. Um, it, is, it is one that I constantly have to work on because it is the growth that I am working on to be more like Christ so that I can get that glorification and that I can stand in front of him one day and bow at his feet. So that is the continual work that, that I have to do in my life. Another perfect segue of like, okay, this sanctifying grace, if that really makes up the bulk of our lives, if that's probably, arguably, where most of us in this room find ourselves, is in the house, we've accepted Jesus Christ, we're here, how are we growing in this grace and love? How are we deepening our faith? How are we growing in this awareness and becoming more Christ-like? Well, John Wesley has some help again. There are two types, or two, two there's, we call this the means of grace, okay? So we had the, the different three graces that we can experience, but then there are ways, there are channels then that we can't even receive and experience God's grace alone. And those two types are two means of grace. These channels are works of piety and works of mercy. They're primarily how we experience Christ's sanctifying grace in our lives to become more holy. Are John Wesley's words, I'm not really sure we go around talking about piety a whole lot and being pious. It kind of makes us sound like a holy club, right? Nerd alert number four. Um, 
But these works of piety being worship and study and private and corporate prayer, searching the scriptures, he says, fasting or abstinence, the Lord's Supper, two major means of grace for us are baptism and communion. Which I'll talk about communion a bit more in a minute. But baptism and communion, out of all of the means of grace, those are the two that we hold to be sacraments, the only two. We know other traditions have more sacraments, but for us, Wesleyans and United Methodists, our two sacraments are baptism and communion, the Lord's Supper. So these works of piety help us grow in grace, gathering for worship, praying together, saying the creeds together. Confessing our sins, that would be a way we experience justifying grace each and every week. And then works of mercy, service, visiting the sick and the imprisoned, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, entertaining the stranger, John Wesley says. Out again, isn't it? There it goes. These are some that John Wesley says are considered works of mercy. But I could also share with you all again Ways that you have experienced God's presence and love when you've been out in service. On a mission trip, in the homeless camps on Sunday mornings, feeding the, feeding the hungry, visiting those who are sick or imprisoned. It's amazing how Christ shows up in those moments and humbles us, challenges us, gives us an awareness of maybe compassion that we didn't have before, And that's the grace of the Spirit to allow us to become just a bit more like Christ in those moments. These are the means of grace whereby we may experience the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to be made holy, to be made holy. So what is salvation? It's the entire work of God from the first dawning of grace in the soul till it is consummated in glory. That's what John Wesley says in a sermon of his on the scripture way of salvation. The entire work of God from the first dawning of grace in the soul till it is consummated in glory. That whole check mark is is salvation. All right, so what is our scriptural sort of foundation for this? I think most obviously We see this in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to read that for us now. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's provenient grace. It is God who works in you. Even to know that we need God's grace, even to will and want to follow Christ, that is grace. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is Paul talking to the Philippians. But he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We know this starts with a therefore, which means whatever came before is pretty important. Bible quiz, it's the Christ hymn that has come right before this in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. But it starts with talking about imitate Christ. Have the mind in you that was in Christ. 
who humbled himself, who didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's telling the Philippians, have that mind that was in Christ. Humble yourself. Before that, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to only his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have the mind of Christ. Do nothing with grumbling or complaining. This is all easy stuff, right? Check, check, check. With the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. That's the, that, thank you, Steve, that is the only way. And I don't know about you, but for me and what Micah and Kendall said, we're still working on this, aren't we? It, it, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Growth in grace and holiness over time. Where every day we need to be confessing our sins, receiving Christ's pardon and gift of grace, and growing deeper in that holiness and love that only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives to produce the fruit that we often talk about of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. We're going to all have these memorized. That is a lifelong journey, a lifelong struggle, a lifelong commitment to taking up your cross daily and following Christ to this way of humility way of humility it's not just as easy to say well I've accepted Christ I'm saved check I'm good to go for us it's more than that right it's a holy life that has to be marked by that kind of love and humility and grace and goodness and none of us are there yet none of us are there yet and this is the fine line of sort of works righteousness this isn't really something we can like earn or do more of or get these holy marks or get the star from the holy club this is all a work of the spirit it's all a work of the spirit that we must surrender to and concede to and accept every single day every single day have this mind in you that was in christ jesus who humbled himself that's our lifelong journey, our goal of becoming more Christ-like and receiving that glorification with him. You know, I think these are important reminders, important reminders for us of our, of our goal, uh, of, of how we get there by receiving the grace of the Spirit who's present with us, these different means, because we know that here, we feel encouraged here, we, we can confess here and receive that grace here, but as soon as we leave these Doors, as soon as we, we leave the safety of these walls, we will face a world that challenges us and our Christian spirit every single day. It challenges us in our sense of love and patience and kindness and goodness. It challenges us every single day to consider the needs of others as better than our own. It's a good reminder for us, especially right before another election, where we have been bombarded with messaging about how our world works and the power that is going on 
right? The sort of uh, the desires for power, the desires for change, maybe even the power grabs, the misinformation, all, I just, I don't know about you, I just, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And so I thought here at the end, before we transition to our time of confession, (laughs) it might be fun to remind ourselves of what John Wesley has to say about elections. So go to a few, few more slides, Brenda. There you go. Okay, this next one. So this is actually a Wesleyan pastor. This one is a good self-check. I read this. If your preferred news source or politician or political party or fill in the blank stokes your fear, anger, and hatred towards others rather than inspiring you to want to learn more, empathize, and understand others better, then it is discipling you in the opposite direction from the love of Jesus. Y'all, sanctifying grace when the Spirit's at work in our lives, we are being formed by the cross of Jesus Christ toward him and his glory. If we are listening to voices in our lives who are stoking anything other than love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, love of our neighbor, regardless of political party, hear me, this is the third way of Christ, then we are being discipled in ways other than Jesus Christ, and we need to be aware of it. And then next, what John Wesley says, that is little. Okay, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy, two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against, And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Sanctification is a lifelong process of growth, of learning to confess our sins, ways that we have wronged one another, ways that we have not loved our neighbors, ways that we have been formed other in the love of Jesus Christ. That is our process of salvation. And our understanding of grace is so rich and it's so good and it's so relevant that it's important that we know that you, have been, you are loved so much by our creator, created in the image of God who wants to restore you and redeem you and set you free to live the life that God designed for us, to set us free from so much that we face in this world today so that we might experience the community and the blessedness of belonging in the kingdom and family of God, in the house, in the house. That's where we are. So as we prepare now in our hearts to turn to a time of communion, I want to just invite you, uh, as I said, we have two sacraments. The table, the Lord's Supper, is, is the second one, where John Wesley says you should celebrate this as often as you can. There's a history in our tradition where you only celebrate it quarterly or monthly, and that simply had to do with how available pastors were to come around on horseback to your church. They only came around about once a month, so that's when everybody married, got buried, or had communion. That's it, right? And that became a tradition that still a lot of United Methodists hold today that we only celebrate communion once a month. But we have all kinds of pastors here, 
every week that are able to preside at this table. And so we sort of adhere to those instructions of John Wesley who says, do this as often as you can because we need grace. And we believe that this is the very real presence of Christ in the cup, in the bread, symbols for us for the sacrifice that Jesus offered on our behalf. We don't believe that they become the physical body of Christ, but we believe there's a very real spiritual presence here of grace that is being offered to you right now. Grace that gives us the courage and the sustenance and everything we need to leave this place and continue on our journey towards sanctification. Because again, we're going to leave these doors and be faced with an onslaught of all kinds of things other than Jesus Christ. And we're going to need the grace and the spirit working within us to respond with love and with peace and with peace and with gentleness. So our liturgy begins that Christ invites all of those to his table who love him. Everybody. Something else that sets us apart as United Methodist is that we recognize this is an open table. That you don't have to be a member here of this church because we don't, we don't control grace. Right? We don't get in the way of the means of grace that God has offered to us. So all are welcome. Some say that you have to be baptized first. Some say that you have to be a member first. Some say that you have to go through classes first. We say all are welcome here. All those, Jesus Christ invites to his table, all those who love Christ. All of those who seek to repent of their sin. All of those who seek now to live at peace with God and with one another. If that's you, you're welcome here to receive this gift of grace. Then, a part of our liturgy that we sometimes skip is a prayer of confession to begin our approach to this table through confession. And so I want to invite you this morning, friends, to join with me in this prayer of confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear the good news, friends. Christ died for you while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward you. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And you can even respond back to me as your pastor priest in this moment and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven too. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this opportunity to approach your table, to experience this meal, this foretaste of the banquet that you have prepared for us in the kingdom. We ask that this would truly become for us that body and blood of Christ in a very real spiritual sense that we can experience your grace right here and right now. For all our shortcomings, for all the ways that we have been formed in ways other than the love of Christ, we confess and we receive your pardon and your goodness that we know we don't deserve and that we cannot earn. God, I ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. 
they would be for us the body and blood of Christ so that we may be redeemed in signs of your body and blood, signs of your goodness in the world. By your spirit, O God, would you make us one with you, one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we can feast at that great heavenly banquet. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.